Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're cooking with gender <laughs> in the podcast studio. <laughs> we are. We're talking about chefs, not the movie chef. Well, maybe a little bit the movie chef to kick things off, because first of all, just generally speaking, this chef, gender, women, chefing, cooking, words, <laughs> words topic is one that a number of stuff I've never told you listeners have requested yeah. because chef is still very much a masculine gendered noun and it is epitomized in a lot of ways by the movie Chef, starring John Favreau, which may, may I offer a brief synopsis Please. before we give our stuff I've never told you review Please. of Chef. So John Favreau, who I like, yeah, okay, sure, I'll go on the record. I like John Favreau. He stars as this tempestuous chef who's very inventive, very good at what he does, of course. But he ends up getting fired from his chef position because, you guys, he tweets out what he actually thinks about a rude food critic and ends up starting a food truck. Mm -hmm. And that seems fine enough, right? Yeah, but basically the movie comes off like Jon Favreau just put together a script or a screenplay in order to have sexy times with Sofia Vergara, who plays his wife or his ex-wife. One of the two. Ex-wife. Uh, and Scarlett Johansson, who is the hostess in his restaurant? Uh-huh. Question mark. Who is very attracted to him. And that was the, the, the scene where I wanted to throw my whisk at the, the television screen was when ScarJo was really pining for him actively. And he was like, ugh, I don't know if I can do this. And I was just like, seriously? Seriously? A bloated John Favreau gets to, gets to turn down Scarlett Johansson? <laughs> like, I... Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that movie, there's this like super long, speaking of Scarlett Johansson, there's a super long grilled cheese making, like sexy montage. Uh, he's making the grilled cheese for her. She is not a grilled cheese. Um, and I just wondered, like thinking about that, if the role were reversed, if the woman, if the main character were a woman chef, would they have made like a sexy grilled cheese montage? No, Caroline. It just would have been a cutaway to her eating yogurt very sexily, <laughs> as every yogurt commercial does. Right. And laughing with a salad. Yeah. Yeah, that whole thing. Maybe if she were making some kind of chocolate dish and some like fell out of the, the bowl and onto the counter and she was like, oh, I'll lick it up. Oh, wait a minute. Or she could have uh, reenacted that cover. I can't remember what magazine it was that had uh, Nigella Lawson on it with the caramel. Was it GQ or something like dripping down her face? Oh. Yeah. What I'm saying is that's just hard to get out of the hair. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. That's all I could think about. It's hard enough to get, like, bubble gum out of the hair. Much less a whole bucket. Marshmallow fluff. <laughs> you know? I don't know what I'm doing, but... But, for our purposes today, Chef starring John Favreau mm-hmm. is a useful jumping off point because it really does contain so many of these gender dichotomies of men and women in the kitchen, where you have man as revolutionary, innovative, sexy chef by virtue of his genius. Yep. Whereas women are kind of always struggling in this male-dominated profession, 
they have to be more sexless mm-hmm. unless they are like a Nigella who's cooking on television, which we're going to talk about in our next episode, um, and are nurturing with their food. They're feeding yeah. people rather than inventing. Yeah. And I mean, also, when you look at the movie Chef, everyone in his kitchen is a dude, yeah. including, including John Leguizamo. It's really the only other person I remember in that movie. But th- but there are no ladies. Um, I don't even know if there was a lady pastry chef in that movie. And if you look at the statistics today, ladies and gentlemen, women make up the bulk of, of pastry chefs. <laughs> yeah, pastry chef would have been a perfect like token woman yeah, here, role for that, for that film. Here's your opportunity, and you missed it. So let's talk a little bit, though, about the history of chefing. Because as long as there have been people wealthy enough to not cook their own food, there have been private cooks. Though it wasn't exactly an esteemed position, because if you go back, for instance, to ancient Rome, then cooking would have been the job of slaves. Yeah, so women of the house, they were not tasked with cooking. You didn't have the ancient Roman wife in there with a whisk being like, oh, I've got to get dinner ready for the guests, all these grape leaves. No, none of that. It was slaves' jobs. But but don't be fooled. There were still ancient food snobs. So, like, you can take comfort, and when you're rolling your eyes at food snobs today, whether it's a food writer or just your friend who won't stop posting pictures on Instagram... It's always been there, and it will always continue to be there. So uh, this is coming from Patrick Foss, who wrote Around the Roman Table in 1994. Uh, He says that there were these cookery writers who asserted that the art of cooking, and that's in quotes, should not be left to slaves or ordinary folks. So there was the idea back then of like, or not chef, but a cook as someone who was above the fray, that they were smarter and more artistic than you in practicing this craft. And there are even 3rd century BCE plays that do feature boastful commercial cooks who had uh, their own kitchen slaves. And when we get to the Middle Ages, things start becoming a little more professionalized and structured thanks to guilds and apprenticeships. But for the origins of restaurant chefs... We have to go to to France. Caroline, let's go to France. <laughs> to France and to soup places. Yeah, I love that the first restaurants were essentially those like let us soup prize you uh, kinds of restaurants. Which I will not go to because the name drives me crazy. Used to love it as a kid because, Caroline, you know I love puns. I know you do. And also, I wasn't there so much for the soup and salad, but they would always have uh, all-you-can-eat froyo. froyo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always yeah. in it for the froyo and puns. Got the- <laughs> What has changed? Nothing. I don't know. Nothing. Yeah, so in the 18th century, after those guilds' legal structures relax, we get the first modern Western restaurants. And, of course, they're run by guys because the world was run by guys. Uh, so in 1765, uh, we get the first restaurant, which is basically just a soup place that sold restoratives, hence the word restaurant. And I think it's interesting to note that that word, restaurant, has been associated with restorative broths and stews since the Middle Ages. And this is followed by the first fancy pants place with actual menus in 1782, which I would love to see a, a menu from the 18th century. I bet it's heavy on the awful. But it wasn't until the beginning of the 19th century that chefs became known as chefs, short for chef de cuisine. That's right. And then still in France, because it's like the birthplace of of 
Sheffery. Is that well, a word? Well, of everything, Caroline. <laughs> All culture. Suits and tweeds. <laughs> and, and soups. And poodles. Yes, and soups. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's in France that we get the development of different types of chefs. And it's where we start to see higher status and more professionalization when these formerly known as cooks, chefs, start making their own menus and supervising all aspects of kitchen management. So it goes beyond making soups, Kristen, and into telling other people how to make soups and, and take them out to people at the dinner table. And the most famous one at the time was a guy named Antonin Karem, who's credited with making the position of chef what we think of it today. Karem was the original John Favreau. <laughs> <laughs> he essentially worked up through an apprentice-style hierarchy himself, and then I guess once he got to the top, he was like, and now, since I cannot be king, I shall be chef. But it's really Georges-Auguste Escoffier, who's often cited as the chef, who applied military-like structure to the kitchen. And he also is credited with inventing the fifth mother sauce. Mm. And Caroline, I just think it's kind of funny that all of these guys who created these like five basic sauces mm-hmm. of French cuisine called them mother sauces, because shouldn't they just be like father sauces instead? Saucy sauces. Yeah. Sassy sauces. Daddy I actually, sauces. I actually hate French cooking. I'm dropping a truth bomb. I'm, I'm, I, my boyfriend and I went to a like super hyper fancy, expensive, overpriced French restaurant. Uh, Ooh, we, 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 uh, we know it was terrible. It was, it was just like so heavy and, and everything was like, oh, this is so good, but let's put one weird ingredient in here to totally throw the taste off. I just, Antonin Krem is rolling. In his grave. And so is Escoffier. I know they both are. I'm, I'm, we're gonna get letters. Um, from, from their ghosts. From their ghosts, yeah. Uh, but so we've only mentioned dudes so far. I, I would like to know where the ladies are. And it turns out that, uh, no surprise, women were basically at home. But even though a lot of them were cooking at home from the 17th through the 19th centuries for a very, very long time, that didn't mean they weren't necessarily making money off of it. Some women would be caterers or confectioners. And as early as the 17th century in England, women were instructing other women in the art of baking. Talk about a very gendered culinary craft so that they could earn a little pocket change as well. Yeah, and they sometimes ran small shops selling their own preserves and candies and baked goods and sometimes uh, ran simple baking and catering operations out of their home. And I think that it's an interesting side note that in 18th century America, when you start to see a couple different types of cooking schools emerging, you get the first public pastry lessons from a woman. Uh, and this is Elizabeth Goodfellow, who opened her own pastry shop in Philadelphia in 1808. And that's America's first cooking school, which that's not this episode. We're not talking about cooking schools. But I do think it's interesting that so women have always been cooking at home, except, you know, in ancient Rome, where it was the job of a team of slaves and not the woman of the house. But it's always traditionally been woman the woman's role to cook for the family. But here, when it comes time to leave the house and make an income, women are basically limited to this baking realm. Baking realm. I mean, and the I think it's notable, too, that we have it acceptable for them being in the instructional role mm-hmm. as well, which is still distinct from being 
in the professional kitchen cooking for quote unquote important mouths. I don't know why I put that in quotes because those are just my own words. <laughs> um, and, and that's something though, that instructional angle is something that we'll talk about also in our celebrity slash TV chef episode coming up next. But like you said, this whole women as bakers trend never really stops. Even if we look at the James Beard Awards for pastry in the past 10 years, seven women have taken it home while three men have taken it home. And then there was one husband and wife couple, Mm -hmm. which I thought was so precious. And women, though, still make up a large majority of culinary school pastry program enrollees. It's the most acceptable culinary course for women even today, because ladies love baking, right? We have the, those little <laughs> delicate fingers that can make those intricate sweets. Yeah, it's basically the industrial revolution for food with tiny child fingers making making cakes. And it is that exactness that a lot of people cite as a reason for being attracted to baking. And it's interesting to read interviews with people who are pastry chefs and bakers and things like that because they all they echo these gendered ideas. Uh, New Jersey Monthly in 2010 talked to pastry chef Melissa Walnock and she says um, she loves the precision and science of it. She says if something goes wrong, I can backtrack and figure it out. And I've always been drawn to the artistic element of pastry. A regular chef, not to demean what they do, they take a piece of raw meat and cook it. I'm making a whole new creation from scratch. Perhaps, she says, females have more patience, enjoy working on intricate things, and are more organized. Whereas, she says, guys take a monstrous animal like a 300-pound pig and break it down. It brings out their manliness, I guess. And Walnock also notes that the pastry departments in the super fancy restaurants where she's worked are all guys. So even though she says that, yeah, there's this total gender division, like women maybe are more drawn to pastry and men are more drawn to classic chefery, uh, even when you get up in those higher echelons, it's still dude-driven. And which is something kind of echoed in our teaching podcast, where it's like the higher up the rank of what we consider a feminized profession you go, you do tend to see more guys at the top. But she also wasn't the only pastry chef that New Jersey Monthly talked to who mentioned just like this assumption that, oh, yeah, women are just innately drawn to pastry. One person said, yeah, there's just, you know, less testosterone mm-hmm. involved in in making pastry. But perhaps it's not so much hormones attracting women to pastry chefing as earlier and more regular hours. That was yeah. something that the New Jersey Monthly reporter mentioned that pretty much every woman they talked to cited in terms of it just being something that they could do and also have a family. Yeah, one woman they interviewed said that I'm the pastry chef, so I have my kids at night. My husband's the classic chef in the restaurant. He works nights and has the kids in the morning. Yeah, oh, and, and they also noted like cooler temperatures in the kitchen. It's just like you go in at like 6 a.m., 5 a.m., and it's quieter, it's cooler, and then you leave, yeah. probably when things are really heating up for dinner service. Well, and that, that can sound a little flip, but I mean, we'll, we'll touch on some issues, some more issues later in the podcast about why women might feel unwelcome in a kitchen if they're not a, a pastry chef. But sweets aside, if we go back to our women in restaurants timeline, in the early 20th century, 
there there weren't restaurants run by women, but rather tea rooms and cafeterias, which were considered appropriate for women that women usually staffed in terms of like top down every single position. Yeah, this is coming from Jan Whitaker in an article for the Boston Hospitality Review. I thought it was really interesting that it's not that these things were these places were literally only for women, but it had a lot more to do, she wrote, with the fact that men didn't want to eat at a feminine woman staffed establishment, especially somewhere like a cafeteria where it's like it's run by women and I have to pick up my own tray of food. Like, this is ridiculous. This is not what a restaurant is. Um, and I thought it was interesting, too, that here in Atlanta, we've got Mary Max Tea Room. And it wasn't started in the early 20th century. It was started in the 40s. It's one of Atlanta's only remaining tea rooms. Uh, but it was started by a woman. And in the history of the, the restaurant on the website, it talks about how, well, you know, a woman couldn't just walk in and start a restaurant. So the owner started it as a tea room. So when then did we get the first professional chef who is a woman in a restaurant? I don't know that she was necessarily the first, but she was certainly the first famous one. Uh, in World War One. we have Anna Tackmeyer, who was appointed as chef at E.M. Statler's Hotel Pennsylvania. Yeah, and this is all a bunch of this information is also coming from Jan Whitaker, but also a fabulous 1919 profile of Tackmeyer and Woman's Home Companion. Uh, so Tackmeyer got her start making sandwiches and other lunch goodies to sell to employees at the public library on Fifth Avenue in New York. And they liked her so much and liked her food so much that they ended up giving her a space for a lunchroom. She switched things up a little bit by working as a traveling saleswoman for the General Chemical Company. But she apparently took this opportunity in all of her travels of staying at hotels to note how bland and boring much hotel food was. And so she she basically approached E.M. Statler and told him what's what. Like, dude, your cooking is like so dull. So he ends up hiring her for his hotel. But it's a, a separate woman-only Home cooking kitchen. As is appropriate and should be, <laughs> Caroline. Um, so in that women's home companion profile, though, it raves that Tackmeyer has, quote, pointed the way to a new field of woman's endeavor and one which women can make peculiarly their own. And the whole angle of it was like, well, you know what? I'm just I'm just doing this home cooking. We're going to make lots of fried chicken and gravy and offer weary travelers the kind of food Mm -hmm. that their wife might be serving them at home instead. So we still have that woman as nurturer you know, uh, replacing like the the domestic role. Yeah, and as um, Whitaker points out, this ties in with both tea rooms and cafeterias, and with Tackmeyer's role. That for most of the 20th century, she writes, women's cooking was directly related to what was going on at home. Women weren't coming in and and taking apart those 300-pound pigs and cooking massive dinners of meat and potatoes for an entire hotel of guests. There was just a lot of boiling, baking, pan-frying, and stewing because, uh, as Whitaker says, the drama of big knives and high flames was absent. A kitchen run by a woman was likely to be staffed by women also as men disliked taking orders from the opposite sex. And they even asked in this profile, this woman's companion profile, they asked Tackmeyer what 
the male chefs thought of her, which I thought was great because I was like, this is exactly what would be asked in an interview in 2015. What do your male colleagues think of you? And apparently she gave the reporter a knowing smile and said, they have nothing to say, but I know that they are keeping up a powerful lot of thinking. We do not attempt to compete with them in any way. We are specializing in a sort of cooking which they do not do. I'm sure that when they get used to us, they'll see the matter in the right Light and she she made it uh, made it a point to emphasize like we're not trying to compete with the men we're not taking their jobs we're not doing any sort of man cooking we're doing very specific home cooking and so that woman's companion piece encourages women like look you too can maybe run your own segregated woman's gravy cooking kitchen. One day, if you're lucky. Listen, an, uh, an all-ladies gravy kitchen sounds <laughs> amazing to me. I'm going to open a bar and name it that. Yeah, gravy kitchen? <laughs> as long as there's like a little nap room in the side, because yeah. gravy just sounds like a real recipe for sleepy times. Um, but if we fast forward to 1943, 330 hotels reported that they had female chefs. But that number didn't really last. It wasn't like... The trajectory just went up, 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 and now we have parody in the kitchen. No, if we look at the modern lady chef landscape today, we're still asking the same questions that Tackmeyer would have been asked in the World War I era. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. saying before the break, the lady chef landscape today is really not that much better. Uh, According to Bloomberg in 2014, there are more women CEOs than there are head chefs. What is going on? First, let's look at a couple numbers. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 54.7% of food prep and serving related occupations are filled by women, but that drops to 20% for chefs and head cooks, which itself, ladies and gentlemen, is down from the 2006 pre-recession number of 23.9. So if we back up, though, and look at cooking school, what's going on? Um, 40% of International Culinary Center classic, i.e. non-pastry graduates, are women. So that's a healthy percentage. I mean, but it's still, again, we have more men pursuing culinary arts than women. Uh, even fewer enrolled in the New York Culinary Institute of America's Culinary Arts Associate Program, 35% of them uh, being women in 2012. Then if you look at Johnson and Wales, female graduates actually doubled from 92 to 2012. Um, and there were two more women than men who graduated in that year. And so we're starting to see at least more women filling the second and third tier jobs like sous chef. But breaking that culinary ceiling and getting getting that head chef hat on, because I'm just imagining that once you are uh, promoted to chef, they give you a really fancy chef hat. Um, that's still a big question mark. I think that's a thing, though. Like your hat does designate who you are. The height of it. Yeah. I mean, I would if I make it to chef, I would want a, a really, really like a 10 gallon chef hat. Yeah. I started to accidentally off ramp in the research of this because I, I started reading about the hats and what they mean and the 
it's all a bunch of like mythology hooey. It's nobody can really pinpoint when, where, and why all of these hat traditions originated. Ooh, I bet there are stuff I've never told you listeners too who can give us chef hat insights. I bet, but you know, anytime I'm at a restaurant and I see a chef come out of the kitchen with the big toque on his head, I'm always like, uh, how do you keep that on your head? It's not wind resistant. Maybe do they have like a chin strap? <laughs> Maybe like a marching band hat. Uh huh. That, that they should, and also they should play marching band instruments. Yeah, or or they should just wear marching band hats. Well, yeah. <laughs> we we are really solving a lot of problems. We're, today. we're solving all the problems, but. Looking at all of those relatively positive culinary school stats, it led me to wonder if there's just a leaky pipeline like there is any time we talk about STEM, women in pursuing science, technology, engineering, and math careers. And the answer is basically, yeah. It's not that women are dropping out of culinary school. There are plenty of women who are going. There are more women than ever who are pursuing these careers. But so what then is stuck in the pipe that is making women sort of fall back instead of pursue a longer career in chefery? Well, some people think that women just don't want the job. They don't want to have to pursue and go through all of the trouble, the literal kitchen trouble that you have to go through to prove yourself in order to achieve the rank of chef. And this is something that Katie Grieco, who is head of human resources at Craft Group um, and Craft for Top Chef fans is Tom Colicchio's uh, group. She said, quote, there just aren't as many women who want to do the jobs as men. And I think that executive chefing might be one of them. So we're like, why? Why wouldn't women aspire to these kinds of jobs? Oh, yeah. Babies, family, the whole structure of working in a professional kitchen, especially if you are a chef, that means that you are working at night and really like all day. It doesn't really leave much time at all if you want to be a parent as well. Yeah, and this is something that uh, Mary Blair Loy uh, in her book calls the family devotion schema. Basically, there are more societal expectations on women to have a family, raise that family, be home with the family, and rather than dedicating themselves to high-power, high-stress careers that take them away from the home. Um, so, yeah, within within the restaurant industry, of course, it's not surprising that maternity and paternity leave are super rare. Those long hours end up really requiring creative childcare options, like that couple we mentioned earlier where the wife is the pastry chef, she works early hours, the husband is the classic chef, he works at night, they basically switch off. I wonder when they see each other. Now I'm worried about this couple that I don't know. I thought the same thing, Caroline, when I was reading about them. Like, well, but where's their couple time? I know. Do they have dates? What if their one night off a week doesn't overlap? Um, but so, anywho, uh, the delightful chef, Jean-Georges Von Richten, uh, who runs 24 restaurants in North America, basically uh, laid it out that, hey, by the time that they become sous chefs and they're hitting almost 30, they want to have a family and it changes everything. He says the ticking clock makes a difference. Thanks, Jean-Georges, for your perspective. Well, we should also note, though, too, Caroline, that in the same interview, Jean-Georges commented that his sole female sous chef is just, she's very talented, yes, yes, but she's also so attractive she should be a model instead. Ha, ha, ha. Well, I'm glad he has so many opinions. Well, and, and that interview, too, was cited in a number of our sources we were reading as a snapshot of 
sexism in professional kitchens. Well, and people might be wondering, well, where's the sexism in in women, you know, wanting to have children at 27, 28, 30 or whatever? And it's like, well, no, 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 that's not sexist. You can want to have kids whenever, never want them to happen at all. It's more the assumption from people like this guy that, oh, well, you're just going to leave. You're going to I'm going to hire you as a sous chef, but you're never going to really rise up the ranks because you're going to want to start popping out babies. And he even uh, continued on in his thought to say something like women just want more of a life. No. Yeah. I mean, no. <laughs> Jean-Georges. Um, Nicole Brisson, who's the executive chef at Mario Batali's Las Vegas restaurant, um, has talked about how she often works 19 hour days She's so tired of people assuming that she's the pastry chef because gender again Mm -hmm. and said that if she ever wanted to have kids, she'd probably have to quit her job. Yeah, because if you don't have the type of partner at home who can fill in that gap or you don't have those child care options, no matter who you are, that's going to make, you know, man or woman, that's going to make having kids and having a family pretty, pretty tough. Not to mention the money for the hours you work is not great. And this is also coming from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The average uh, for U.S. chefs and head cooks in general is just over 46500 a year. But women's median income is 83.5% that of men's. But the thing is, when you think about that, it, it gets even worse because so restaurant industry jobs are already pretty tough, but women are concentrated at the lower ends. So when people talk about why does women's representation at higher rungs of their industries matter, it's things like this. This is where, if this is your passion, this is where you make the most money. But not as many women are rising through those ranks as men are, cracking that culinary ceiling. But also when they do, they're still making slightly less. Yeah. And not to mention the scarce health benefits or insurance, vacation, sick time, et cetera. I mean, this this puts our maternity leave episode um, in a different light where it's just like it, it just seems impossible. You mm-hmm. know, you are either going to be a chef and that is it or you're going to be something else. You figure out another way to make it work and try to have a life around that. Um, And if you want to be a chef, if you really want to try to bust through that culinary ceiling, then there's a very good chance that you're going to have to deal with some hostility in general and possibly sexual harassment. This is something that a lot of women in very important kitchens around the world have talked about and some women who don't want to talk about it at all. There was an interview in Fortune magazine with uh, a chef whose name I'm forgetting at the moment. She um, at the time, though, was became the third woman in the U.S. to receive two Michelin stars. And the interviewer asked her if she had ever experienced sexual harassment. And she said, well, of course I have, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, and and it's something that uh, Diep Tran, who's the chef owner of the Good Girl Dinette in Los Angeles, uh, talked about that she basically did not let stuff like that dissuade her. But she says that she has watched other women stay away because of it, which she says, quote, they shouldn't have to do, that these are unacceptable conditions and that she makes sure that in her restaurant, uh, people are outright fired if they won't cut out the not only sexual harassment behavior, but really any sort of uh, racist, sexist, any type of phobic behavior or language. She just doesn't tolerate it. 
Well, and I wonder if that generally hostile, which some would just call macho environment in a lot of these kitchens, goes back to Escoffier and the militarization of the kitchen hierarchy and the entire way that kitchens are run. And I'm also thinking about just watching episodes of Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen where he's just screaming at people. And the assumption that if you are going to work in a kitchen, then you need to be ready to be cursed at continually and hear all sorts of awful things and to just be sweating constantly. I mean, it just seems like a very unpleasant place. I mean, but that just makes me think of of so many other career type topics that you and I have talked about where it's like, but it doesn't have to be like that. Right. You know, people are like, well, women can't stand the pressure, so they just shouldn't even bother. You know, women obviously aren't cut out for this environment because this is the environment that kitchens have. And it's like, well, I mean, obviously not all kitchens function like that. Obviously, there are restaurant owners who don't tolerate this crap. So why don't we just <laughs> agree to change the environment? Yeah, I mean, you you can influence the you can build whatever kind of workplace culture you probably want to have, even if you are in a high pressure environment. But I wonder, too, if there's that almost locker room esque resistance embedded within and institutionalized within this industry uh, to not want that many women in the kitchen and certainly not wanting them to call the shots. Because if you have women in there, then you're going to have to watch what you say. You're going to have to watch who you might smack from time to time. It's the same thing we talked about in our pinup episode about like, well, we can't fart in front of people anymore. We can't have our cal- our dirty calendars in front of people anymore. What is the world coming to? But it's that idea that we need to change the people instead of the culture that has a lot of women feeling like they have to walk this fine line in terms of fitting in. Sociologists Deborah Harris and Patty Jeffrey uh, were writing a guest post over at the Feminist Kitchen, and these are two women whose names you'll see a lot when you start reading about issues of gender and cooking. Um, but they talked about the fact that the women they have interviewed really report this pressure to conform to that macho environment. They end up feeling like invaders and have to constantly fight against managers and higher-ups' ideas that women cannot physically or emotionally handle higher pressure and higher status jobs. But then on the flip side, you act too masculine and you'll get labeled a bitch. Mm Mm-hmm. Or someone who is undermining authority. So it does become a bit of this catch-22, it seems like. Yeah, you've either got to like fit into the sexual harassment joking culture, basically, and be like, yeah, I'm going to make all of these jokes, too, whether it makes me uncomfortable or not. Or I'm just going to like be cut and dry. I'm just going to give orders. And when I do, people are going to... You know, ask me where my sense of humor is. Yeah, like have to de-sex yourself almost. Um, but as Laura Destano, who is a well-known chef de cuisine, told the New York Times, it all depends on the kitchen. She says, in a good kitchen, male and female really doesn't matter anymore. You get the work done. You handle yourself professionally because kitchens can still be crazy places and you go home. And a lot of people say that. I've seen a lot of quotes about, like, gender doesn't matter, male versus female doesn't matter. It's your passion for the cooking. It's your passion for the craft. And, and yeah, sure, I, I agree with that. Gender shouldn't matter. But it obviously does. And it even affects, well, in a cyclical way, it affects how women chefs are then covered in the media, which then affects the trajectories of a lot of people's careers. Yeah, there, there's a lot of concern and conversation within the culinary industry over the 
ghettoizing of female chefs, of whether it is useful at this point to spotlight female chefs and whether that's just, again, continuing this cycle of, oh, look, it's a woman who can cook. Yeah, the editors-in-chief of both Gourmet and Food and Wine magazines, who are both women, uh, basically were saying, no, no way. Because once you start doing those like top women lists, that's just another way of pointing out differences or emphasizing that male and female are inherently different. When they're saying, no, once you're holding the knife, you're holding the knife. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. But then you have the issue of what happened with Time Magazine a couple years ago when they put together this gods of food spread, you know, showcasing whom they selected to be the most influential chefs and literal tastemakers in the U.S. And I don't know, it might have also been around the world. And people (laughs) were not too pleased with it because the gods of food, as gods implies, we're all dudes. It was like that Vanity Fair photo not too long ago that came out where it was like the new face of late night TV. And it was just all dudes in suits. Mostly white dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Was Trevor Noah in that picture? Yes. Okay. Well, there we go. There we go. Trevor Noah. <laughs> Diversity. <laughs> there we go. Um, and a lot of people, of course, then called for, well, if you're going to only feature dudes, we need to have a goddesses of food thing. And then that... Again, was like you said, Kristen criticized as just ghettoizing female chefs. It would be like saying, oh, well, yeah, these are good for girls, like good for them. But Amanda Cohen, who's the chef owner of Dirt Candy, which is a vegetarian restaurant, which I was like, dirt candy, vegetables, I get it. I know. I had the same moment, (laughs) the exact same moment. It's like dirt candy. Oh, all right. Uh, She said on Twitter, as long as women are under-recognized by most mainstream awards, they need their own awards. Hashtag necessary evil. She went on to blog that uh, press gives disproportionate attention to men, which means, quote, deadline oppressed nomination committees and food writers focus on just those people, creating a cycle of recognition Recognition, reward, and fame. Well, speaking of Twitter and this whole question, Anthony Bourdain tweeted out something in response to the 2013 S. Pellegrino Award for World's Best Female Chef. And that year was Italian chef Nadia Santini. And when it was announced, he tweeted out something along the lines of, do we seriously need a female chef category. Isn't that kind of demeaning? (laughs) Hashtag 2013, which I really appreciate that he hashtagged that. Um, And it sparked a lot of conversation yet again, but it was also kind of funny because initially it was a lot of prominent male chefs like tagging all of their other dude chef friends trying to have this conversation about whether female chef categories are helpful or hurtful designations to which a lot of female chefs were like, seriously, this, this, <laughs> this is it. This is what we're talking about, guys. And I mean, and it is a, a good question to raise. Like, does, and, and this has come up in, in so many of our podcasts, the question of whether, you know, female director or female doctor, which kind of just makes it sound like a gynecologist, is progressing anything at all. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely get the idea. I get the gist. You need to be like, hey, no, seriously, guys, there are women who are chefs and they're amazing and they're at these wonderful restaurants and you need to go eat their food and recognize them and give them awards just the same as you do men. And I mean, I think Cohen was right in saying that like, hey, 
some media people are not going to dig down deep enough to get these names. We need to put them out there. But yeah, it's that it's that idea of inserting differences between male and female chefs, because, of course, there is no gender difference when it comes to how you cook or how you taste. Oh, although some would say that there is a difference in how men and women cook, at least when you look at how the media does cover male versus female chefs, because even when female chefs get great attention, which is critical for their careers, of course, if you look at how men are covered, they're usually given credit for intellectual and technical work in producing dishes. They're masters who dominate the food. They're rule breakers. I'm thinking of David Chang and Anthony Bourdain now. Um, and they're usually seen as these like culinary empire builders, whereas women usually get little mention of technical skill and they're likelier to be praised for being hard workers, following tradition and cooking from the heart. You know, they just want to feed people. They just want to nourish, as women do. Yeah, and like we'll talk about in our next episode, they're frequently portrayed as either mothers or sex objects. So, mm, comfort food. But uh, Harris and Jeffrey, those uh, sociologists we mentioned earlier, wrote that our research on media definitions of great chefs tends to reaffirm the cooking and career choices made by men. Even though our interviews with women chefs show that they face stereotypes, sometimes even hostility and family demands that make it very hard for them to reach the same levels as their male colleagues. And so basically looking at art, they looked at a bunch of articles and how men and women are written about and how we define success. And it's so often from the male point of view talking about those empires. Why haven't you built an empire yet? How many restaurants do you own? Where are they? Whereas women who don't get the same type of media attention and who then don't end up winning the same types of awards, they don't get the same platform that a lot of these famous male chefs do in terms of people even knowing who they are so that they can go buy their branded cookware or watch their television show or or eat at one of their 15 restaurants. Well, and a couple of examples of how this works. If we look at Lydia Bastianic, she's the owner of four restaurants and a partner in a number of others. She's a cookbook author. She's a TV host. Um, I was personally introduced to Lydia, not on PBS, as I probably should have been, which I believe she uh, got her start TV-wise on, on PBS, but rather as the mother of Joe Bastianic, who was a former MasterChef judge. Yeah. Um, but because she is an Italian cook, partially because she's an Italian cook, I think, and also because she's a woman, she's often framed as cooking comforting, nurturing food. The food is always being linked to her family, to her grandmother. Even though, I mean, this woman is a winner of multiple James Beard Awards. I mean, she's a legit chef. But it's usually always... She's always framed as mother, wife, nurturer. Yeah, and and same thing kind of with Alice Waters. So she's a self-taught chef who was at the forefront of the organic food movement in California. She started the restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley in the 70s. Gourmet named it America's Best Restaurant in 2001. It earned a Michelin star uh, in 2006 through 2009. But still, she's typically portrayed as this nurturer, educator, caretaker, you know, adorable small businesswoman, rather than the culinary powerhouse that she really is. Well, it's probably because with 
her and a lot of other, I think this is particular to women chefs on the West Coast, which some of the, I think it was Gastronomica was suggesting is friendlier in general to women chefs versus the East Coast. A lot of those female West Coast chefs like Waters are more interested in having this one amazing restaurant that they cultivate and have a strong hand in rather than building out a franchise. Yeah, we did read uh, several different sources that said that, that women tend to be thriving today in the smaller standalone restaurant scene rather than those empires. Like your gravy kitchen, Caroline. Exactly. Mm, what kind of gravy do you want today? Uh, just, uh, just bacon, meat, <laughs> meat gravy, feminist gravy. It would not be bacon. Pour it on everything. It wouldn't be. No. What would it be? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Unicorn, something menstrual. <laughs> oh Lord. Uh, well, so what can help us? get over this hump of not being able to recognize more women as the incredible chefs that they are. One commenter on that feminist kitchen post that we referenced was talking about how when you just continue to talk about how bleak the landscape is for lady chefs, it's not really going to help us. She said that what I'd like to see is less focus on how awful and hard kitchens are for women and more focus on building networks of female cooks and chefs who can support each other in material ways. Now, if you're talking about separating women out from men, I think this is an actual smart, productive way to do it. Maybe not having the 50 best chefs list and then the 50 best women chefs like that sucks. But to have women forming their own networks, whether they're huge corporate things or more grassroots efforts, that is a great, I think, way to to spend your energies in whatever industry you're in. Yeah, and that's something that's happening with the Tokla Society, which is a networking group for women in the restaurant industry, which was founded by Momofuku Group brand director Sue Chan. Um, and I love it. It's it's named for Alice B. Toklas, who was Gertrude Stein's partner, who would stay home and take care of the house and cook the meals while Stein was out being, you know, Gertrude Stein. Out being Gertrude Stein. Yeah. yeah, and there's also mentorship programs available within the Women Chefs and Restaurants Network and the group She Chef. And slowly, very slowly, so slowly that there are a handful of examples, um, restaurant groups are seeing the need for better insurance and vacation policies and better maternity and paternity leave options. Um, because I'm sure that we're, you know... At a point in history, maybe where, I don't know, men also want to take time off for their families. <laughs> and so I think people are starting to realize the need for better policies. For instance, in that Momofuku group that you just mentioned, Kristen, employees who are with the company for a year get free health insurance, paid vacations and maternity and paternity leave. The Altamira group offers medical, dental and vision insurance plus paid holidays. And I know people are like, what's the big deal? That's a huge deal for, yeah. the, for the restaurant industry. And Alice Waters, speaking of Alice Waters, she pioneered job sharing programs between parents, instituted a six months off furlough system for head chefs and developed this roster of impressive cooks and chefs, which allowed all of this allowed chefs to have that flex time to spend with family as needed to take time off. If you're sick, can you imagine? Oh, my God. Someone in, uh, working in a kitchen gets to take sick time. Oh, as it should be, thinking of a sick person making food. Oh, there was just an article the other day where, that I saw online that was talking about how nobody in the restaurant industry takes enough time off for, for sick time oh. because, because you 
could lose your job so easily. You know, the job of a chef, I know we're talking about chefs specifically, but if you can't show up for your shift for multiple nights, like they still need to cook the food. And beyond that, too, one thing that Alexandra Guarnaschelli, who's the executive chef at New York City's Butter Restaurant, said was, quote, when women chefs get media attention, it's for bucking the norm. How about we just become part of the norm? Can we qualify for norm status? And that's an excellent point. I mean, male chef is normative at this point. Female chef is the other. She's in the gravy kitchen. Yeah. When you heard about the movie Chef, I bet you didn't picture a lady chef. No. And you know what? Uh, Speaking of chef movies... I don't know if it's his next role, but an upcoming role for Mr. Bradley Cooper, who just made waves on the Internet and the media cycle in general for um, uh, saying that he would be sharing his salary info with female co-stars to make sure they're getting equitable pay in Hollywood for all of his upcoming films. And he will be doing that, I hope, on his upcoming film, Burned, where he plays a chef. Hmm. But, you know, if if he is um, making grilled cheese sensually, I might... Tune in. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we got to close out this podcast (laughs) because I think it just got hot in here. All that melty cheese. Well, so we have we've talked about a lot. We we started talking about ancient soups and now (laughs) and now we're talking about ancient bee coops. (laughs) Not so ancient. I suppose. No, no. Handsome. Handsome, though. Hot and fresh. So 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 I would like to hear. Because I know you're out there, chefs, lady chefs and and, and uh, gent chefs alike. Uh, what's it like working in the kitchen? D- does any of this resonate with you? Are you sick of hearing about the gender division in the kitchen? Or do you think this is still a conversation worth having? I hope so, because we just had it. And I think it's worth remembering, too, especially if you're listening to this as someone who works in a kitchen. You're like, that's not the way it is at all. What we're pulling from is media portrayals of what is going on in kitchens. So I'm really curious to know how this where are the women chefs angle headline that's repeated over and over and over again, how that does compare to the day to day. So momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address for letters. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And I've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, we've got a couple letters here from our Couple Speak episode, and this one from Brianna not only references Couple Speak, but also Friend Speak, which I love, and so I wanted to read it. She says, oh my gosh, I have never related to an episode more. My whole life feels like it's centered on speaking to people I love and baby talk. My husband and I, who also called each other boyfriend and girlfriend when we dated Caroline and do husband and wife now, but not boyfriend and girlfriend dog, which is way too adorable. Thanks. Uh, She says, we talk in high baby voices at home constantly. Words are mushed together and mispronounced. We throw around sweetie and baby and the like all the time. And it's definitely nauseating for anyone around us. We've done it pretty much since we started dating. The weirdest part is we often communicate and baby speak through our dog, speaking as if we were announcing the thoughts of our Boston Terrier, Luna Lovegood. We refer to each other as mommy and daddy when we're talking for her and mention us both. It's always mommy, daddy, never mommy and daddy. But it's usually things like, Mommy, I love you, but also I love Daddy. Or when she's snuggling between us, I love cuddling Mommy, Daddy. Who are we talking to? It has me very, very concerned about our future children and what voices and terms we'll use. But after the podcast, it made me feel pretty good about our relationship. I 
also use this with my best girlfriends from elementary and high school. My friend Ashley has always been my little red-haired girl because I called her little red-haired girl in second grade before I learned her name. My friend Danielle is my kindred because when we met, we felt very much alike. My friend Abby, who unfortunately passed away in April 2011, was always Abigail, last syllable said with emphasis, or Babs, a nickname of her own choosing in junior high. And she always told us, you're my best friend or best friend in texting and Facebook messages. All of us called each other VISPs, or very important sexy people, from the summer after high school to today. It is so serious that our holidays are VISPmas, VISPs giving, and the like. Boyfriends are VISBs, and husbands are VISHES. <laughs> I used to think all of this stuff was just goofy names and patterns of speech left over from our younger years, but after your podcast, I realized how it's bonded us. People I've run into from high school have said, Oh, I love seeing you girls hang out on Facebook through photos. It's so great to see you all together. I mean, of course we do. Why wouldn't we? But I wonder how our pet group naming has played into that. It certainly worked as a way to strengthen our bond and help us cope while grieving Abby's death for sure. And that has only made our friendship deeper. I don't care if people think we're ridiculous because I wouldn't have my visps any other way. So thank you, Brianna. I love all of that so much. Um, <laughs> as much as I love this letter from Katie... Who wrote, I just finished listening to your most recent podcast, Couple Speak, and it made me smile to hear Caroline say she and her boyfriend call each other girlfriend and boyfriend, because an ex and I used to call each other girlfriend and girlfriend. Also, because same-sex couples are often referred to as partners, and we both found that a bit eye-roll-inducing, we began to refer to each other as partners in different law firms as a way to poke fun at the terminology. She became girlfriend of girlfriend, girlfriend, and girlfriend, and I was girlfriend of girlfriend and associates. When we called each other, we would often play out a kind of long-winded salutation. Thank you for calling girlfriend and associates. This is girlfriend speaking. How may I assist you with your girlfriend needs? It all sounds so silly and a bit eye-roll-inducing, but it's something that makes me smile still to think about, and I thought you two might also get a kick out of it. In the end, our two firms never did merge, but we've remained the best of friends and still maintain a unique way of speaking to each other and so many inside jokes that others often feel like we are speaking a different language. So thanks so much, Katie. And listeners, I have to tell you that couple speak letters have been so fun to get. Um, and if you would like to send us your letter, you can do that at momstuff at howstuffworks.com and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources so you can learn more about gender and chefs, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 